right, counsel. Obviously, we have lots of lawyers first there, and this is always tricky where the time is so minutely sort of chopped up. To put it mildly, there's a lot going on in this case. We can be sure, you know, we've read it, you know, we know what it's about, and a lot of the background and so on and so forth, so I'm just not trying to cut you off, but say what you need to say for your argument, but given the sort of choppiness of time, it will help us, you know, to kind of get to the jugular on some of it as opposed to going back to, you know, the beginning and seeing things that are actually really going on. So, again, I'm not trying to tell you how to argue, but, you know, we're here to help and just bear with us. You know, we're here to help us out and kind of just work with the time and, you know, as we see it, maybe I'll get off track, but hopefully it's helpful to you to kind of get it out. All right, Mr. Berry, you're on. Good morning. May it please the Court. Jonathan Berry for Petitioner Alliance for Fair Boys Education. A rule that facially discriminates on the basis of race and sex now has the imprimatur of the federal government. The Securities and Exchange Commission has determined that NASDAQ's encouragement of race and sex discrimination is in the public interest, and the SEC now has a statutory obligation to ensure NASDAQ's discriminatory rule is carried into effect. Yet the agency maintains there's only private action here, that this is race and sex discrimination the Constitution does not reach. Your Honors, that ship sailed in Moose Lodge with all nine justices on board. A law that, and I'm quoting Moose Lodge, requires compliance by an organization with provisions of its Constitution and bylaws containing racially discriminatory provisions, unquote, violates equal protection. Before you get to the constitutional or statutory questions, isn't it the threshold issue that we've got to, tell me if I'm wrong, we've got to turn our, what is it, intercontinental dicta into an actual holding that these SROs are state actors or were made state actors. In other words, we have to do that, correct? To reach the constitutional questions, Your Honor, the court needs to conclude that there was state action present, and there's a couple different theories of how to get there. But even if we followed any of your theories, that would create a split, at least with the Second Circuit that said these are private organizations and they haven't been dictated to adopt this? Well, we would argue, I guess, two points, Your Honor. One is that we believe that the split, such as it is, already exists, that the intercontinental would be binding. Right, right. Explicitly we said we're not deciding this issue. So there's no way, right, isn't that exactly what we said in intercontinental? With respect, Judge Higginson, no. The intercontinental case is admittedly a little bit vague in terms of what it's reaching. But in our view, the best reading of that case is that the court did in fact hold that the intimate involvement of the SEC with the American Stock Exchange brings that within the purview of the Fifth Amendment, but that the court did not need to decide what due process, the court decided due process was required. It did not decide what specifically was required because in any event, the process actually afforded was sufficient. That's in the enforcement context, correct? It's a due process. 
I mean, it was a, it was a due process case. That's right. And I, I guess I thought that, that the law cited Burton, whatever it was, on joint participation has been tightened up now. And it's, you've got to show some coercion or strong encouragement by the regulator. Um, so there are um, uh, coercion and in, um, or at least encouragement um, uh, are what are the normal way or the most common way in which this comes up. Um, but Your Honor, the, this Moose Lodge case that I, that, I, that I started by talking about um, speaks directly to the question of private organization on its own initiative uh, creates a discriminatory rule and state act, what's unquestionably state action, state law in that case, says that that organization must comply with its own rules. That, that is, um, that state action um, uh, that uh, of the same kind that would apply here. And this is what we have under the Exchange Act. The Exchange Act creates an ongoing statutory duty on NASDAQ uh, to enforce its own rules under threat of SEC enforcement action. NASDAQ has an ongoing duty under federal law. SEC has an ongoing duty under federal law. That puts us very squarely uh, within the facts in Moose Lodge. So the exchanges do through self-regulating organizations, self-regulating, regardless of an approval order, are state actors? Is that, is that your theory? Um, or it, 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 was their delisting rule here, the listing rule, inextricably entwined with government action by virtue of it being approved by the SEC? Which is it? Um, I, may, I may be misunderstanding your Honor's question, but the um, uh, Moose, Lodge, uh, Moose Lodge says that <clears throat> in order for approval uh, to, um, to matter, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm, getting, I'm getting twisted up here. Um, this, there's, an ongoing, there's an ongoing duty. Moose Lodge is not necessarily an entwinement case. Um, Moose Lodge. What's your best entwinement case for otherwise private organizations? Because I, I assume you accept that these exchanges are private organizations. That the only way it becomes state action, what they do, is by virtue of the SEC's involvement. Um, it's by virtue of the SEC's, at, at, a, at an absolute minimum, Your Honor, it is, at, it is by virtue of the ongoing duty um, that the Exchange Act puts on, on both NASDAQ and SEC. That's not, uh, that's not a question of entwinement. Um, in the normal contracting case, uh, if I contract with another party, um, there's no legal, there's no standing legal duty. Okay, so, you, so your argument is that they are state actors regardless of this particular approval order, um, uh, just by virtue of them being regulated. I would say at a, at a minimum, Your Honor, there is, so the SEC is of course a state actor, um, there is, um, the question is, and this is Green v. Uretsky, um, whether, um, whether in this case um, the private organization's um, action is fairly attributable um, to the government. And, and what's your best evidence anywhere in this approval order that the SEC forced, coerced, encouraged NASDAQ to come up with this? Where would you point me to in the approval order as to any evidence of even strong encouragement? Um, so directly, uh, directly on point, Your Honor, I think are the statements by uh, the two commissioners um, who, who invited rulemaking of this type. This is uh, Commissioners Crenshaw and Lee. Um, who had power to block disapproval because of the structure. I'm asking you within the approval order, where do you point to to suggest? I thought the SEC was staying completely neutral on this. They're just saying 
okay, we accept your evidence that investors want this. They may be eccentric. They may be prejudiced. They want this transparency about who board directors are that'll get their money. And therefore, that's a market, that's a market performance feature. Yes. And Judge Higginson, if I may, Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board did not cause Ms. Schwab to give out its discriminatory rules. That's not necessary for a finding of state action that can in some way be attributed to the agency. Okay. So what's the evidence in the record you're pointing to that this is all the SEC? It's not investor driven to their exchanges, right? I mean, when I read the approval order, it sure looks like NASDAQ and the other exchanges are saying our investors want this information. So we don't, we would not argue that there aren't significant numbers of specific investors and investor groups who have been requesting something like this. Our argument is that both that's insufficient under the Exchange Act, but more importantly, SEC initiating this is not necessary in order to make this state action to Ms. Schwab. I think the presiding judge said you're going to ask some more questions here. All right, then. So your argument to us is let's say there was investor interest that we think we want to give our money to board leaderships who have military experience. So we want information about veterans. That's beyond Exchange Act, could not, that would be a, there's no delegated authority to the Exchange Act to respond to investor interest in that. Or even something maybe more objectionable. We want to know if there are any Christians on these committees. Your Honor, we would say that investor, simply investor demand, investor interest in a subject is not sufficient under the Exchange Act. Even the SEC. And that is your non-delegation argument. Exchanges cannot respond to investors, however prejudiced or eccentric. That's your position. It really doesn't have to do with gays, women, the specific issue. It's not about veterans, not about religious affiliation. Exchanges simply can't ask for that. They need, they need, they need substantial evidence that's going to, that what's being proposed is consistent with the Exchange Act, that doesn't run afoul. But isn't it always consistent if you're telling investors, here's more information about the people you're giving money, right? It's not just going to be the white old boys who self-perpetuate themselves in a little black box. We're going to give you whatever you are interested in. People who want to, you know, stop investing in South Africa. We're just going to give you what you tell us. Doesn't that help the market function according to investor interest? So the, the DC Circuit has spoken more about this, that, that mere, that mere interest, mere, mere curiosity is not sufficient, that there needs to be some kind of connection to the purposes of the Exchange Act. Disclosure, put another way. The purpose is economic efficiency and competition, right? Essentially enhance economic performance. And, and, and in this, in this case, Your Honor, the Securities and Exchange Commission concluded that there was, in essence, there was not substantial evidence to support that connection. Okay. We'll hear from opposing counsel on that, but I'm, I'm remembering it pretty well. Note 60 in, you may know them specifically. I'm sure you studied them closer than I did. It says the exchanges say the investors want this data and it helps us sort of find talent, right or wrong. The difference is between 
finding that there's an actual association, and finding investor defense. Like mere, I think it's been a very long time since courts have said that mere customer preference is sufficient to justify discrimination. I don't see that with the act. Okay, thank you. You've reserved your rebuttal time. All right, Mr. Weintraub. Good morning, and may it please the court, I'm Margaret Little from the New Civil Liberties Alliance, representing National Center for Public Policy Research. I'd like to discuss three dispositive points today. Simply put, the Exchange Act cannot bear the weight that SEC and NASDAQ place upon it. Section 6B-5 of the SEC Act, 34 Act, set up the SEC to prevent fraud, manipulation, to establish just and equitable principles of trade, free and open markets, and to protect investors and the public interest in a strong market. That's the limit of its remit. It can act only within the constraints set forth by Congress. My second point, not only does that statute provide no authority, it expressly forbids SEC from regulating in this matter. Again, Section 6B-5 says, regulations must not be designed to regulate matters that are not related to the purposes of this act or the administration of the exchange. When, as here, an agency adopts rules which extends its authority into unrelated and non-material matters, courts must blow the whistle and call the out of bounds. And finally, the board diversity rules compel speech in violation of the First Amendment. These rules impose unprecedented demographic quotas and disclosure requirements regarding race, sexual preference, and sex on companies valued at over $20 trillion. Yet there's nothing in this statute, the authorizing statute, that permits them to do that. In MCI versus AT&T. But the language you read, it says just and equitable trade. That's in the eyes of the investors, right? They decide what's equitable as to where they put their money. They put their money with the large traders like Vanguard and Fidelity. If I want to put my money in the hands of a veteran, I get to decide that, don't I? I need that information. Are you saying no? I am saying no to that. People put their money with these large investors in order to get the best rate of return they can. They do not invest their money in order to have their political decisions made for them. That's not how we make laws. But it sounds like what you're saying is the opposite. You're the one deciding what the information will be. They can't even get told or be told whether people are veterans on the board? Well, this is a compulsory rule with real sanctions. If companies want to disclose such materials, they are free to do so. And their shareholders are free to commit it. I know, but NASDAQ's rule, and I'm just pushing to the other side, but NASDAQ's rule is disclose or explain. To me, it sounds like investors get whatever crazy information they want because that's going to decide where they put their money. 
No, even the... How is it, how is it a quota beyond just, we'll tell you who your people are in that board that are going to invest your money, and that way you can decide who it is that you think is an equitable person to handle your money? Because the rules says two seats. It sets an absolute floor requirement of what companies must have or they must speak. Must have or must disclose whether they have? They must, well, disclose. And otherwise they can explain, this is not in your interest for us to have only gays on the board. They can explain. It's that compelled explanation that deeply offends the Constitution. In fact, in Riley v. National Federation for the Blind... But you agree with me then, if we're going to jump to the constitutional argument, you've got to establish that the exchanges are state actors. And would you defer exactly to what co-counsel argued on that, or would you have anything to add? I don't. I have a few things to add, but we're certainly not in conflict at all. I do have, in the questioning earlier, there was a suggestion that, in fact, the... And this is also a point made in the SEC's brief, that this is something that just NASDAQ wanted, and we're, you know, it seems fine with us, so we'll adopt it. NASDAQ's rule directly cited Crenshaw and Lee as reasons for enacting the rule. It's in the record at 80-475. I guess I'll ask you the same question. I mean, that approval order is 330 footnotes ago. You find... Can you point me anywhere in the order where it suggests that the SEC cares about whether this is good or bad, other than investors wanted it, they got empirical data from the marketplaces that investors will respond financially, and that's within the orbit of the Exchange Act? Even the SEC admits in its briefing... I'm asking about the approval order. Where do you... No, I'm getting there. They admit that the SEC and the exchanges are under no duty to simply adopt what an unspecified number of investors want. Yes. So, you know, they could come in and want to know whether people on the board root for the Yankees or... But if there's empirical data, the marketplace is telling them in all the comments to this rule that this will help market capital movements. It'll help the performance of companies, and it's certainly what investors want. The SEC explicitly found that there was no substantive evidence, conclusive evidence on that one way or the other. You say all the comments by... No, no, no. There were dissenting... Give me the record site where they find there is no evidence to support the suggestion that this relates to... It's in their briefing that they say it was... Just give me a record site. Don't say it's in the brief. In the approval order. I've read all those footnotes. You must have. Where is their support for what you just said? That they found no... I will provide you with that on rebuttal, and I'm sorry I just don't have it in my notes here. But isn't that crucial if you're making an APA attack, that you're saying, you're citing that there's no substantial evidence to support their conclusion that this fits within the Exchange Act's limits? You have to be able to say it was arbitrary, that they didn't... They failed to look at data. They didn't have it. You've just said they did, but where in the approval order? We'll get that to you on rebuttal, Your Honor. But the SEC itself noted that they are not in the business of sort of assessing and responding to unquantified investor demand. And that's also not how we make our rules in this country. Who knows how many Americans are for this or against this? 
That is not anywhere in the record, nor is how many investors want this or don't want this. Nowhere in the record. Well, the market will take care of that. NASDAQ's decided we're going to go ahead on this. We're going to take a little winger. And if in fact you're right, investors don't want it. Government power is not a laboratory in that fashion. We don't make our laws by unquantified demand. No, but that assumes NASDAQ's the government. And I just, you said you were going to add to what he said. What, why is NASDAQ the government? Because it is regulating Americans. It is in fact threatening to delist people if they don't speak. And that is a serious First Amendment violation, not only under Riley, but under Hurley, which says that if you choose not to speak on controversial questions, you have every right to do so. Did you reach your third? I know you said you had three points, but you can finish it. Well, I think we did. Did you make the eight points that you wanted to make on this eight points? Well, Judge Higginson helped me there. Well, I'm eager. You're nicely saying, I hope I'm just as enthusiastic as opposing counsel. I understand, but I did reach the First Amendment cases and the first, and the most important cases. And the only thing I think I didn't quite get to is that the rule expressly forbids the SEC to regulate outside of its remit. It must stay in its regulatory lane. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Nason. You've got your eight minutes now. All right, but you've reserved your rebuttal time, but that obviously is rebuttal. Okay, Mr. Fees-McCartney, please proceed. Good morning. May it please the Court, Tracy Harden on behalf of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I do want to turn first to the state action issues that the Court's been discussing already this morning. And Judge Higginson, you're exactly correct that in order for the Court to reach the constitutional issues here, the Court would have to create a split not only with the Second Circuit, but also the Ninth and arguably the Fourth and Seventh, who have also found that SROs are not state actors. Nor is the Intercontinental decision binding on this panel for precisely the reasons Your Honor already pointed out. The language that the petitioners point to is dicta, and regardless, the focus of the analysis has unequivocally shifted away from Burton and the joint participation doctrine the Intercontinental Court relied on. Okay, so, I mean, you're in the one circuit where the other circuits have said, we've decided this question. They've either disagreed with it or sort of waved the dicta wand. But are you saying it's dicta and it's not persuasive? It's dicta and we now know it's wrong? Or even accepting that, that was in the context of enforcement where there's more intertwining. Which of those three would be your primary, or do you have a fourth? I think the primary argument would be the second one, Your Honor, which is that it's dicta and therefore not binding. It is also incorrect under the modern state action test that both the Supreme Court and this Court have recognized, where we've shifted away from joint participation to looking at the precise action that's alleged to be unconstitutional and whether there's sufficient government involvement in that action 
to fairly attribute it to the government. Because very basically, Supreme Court and Fifth Circuit have both said that, and the cases you're citing are the ones that were cited to us just in oral argument? Your Honor, the cases I would focus on would be this Court's Frazier decision, of course, the Supreme Court's decision in Jackson, as well as the Green case, I think is also instructive, and the Sullivan case from the Supreme Court. I think all of those get to this question of if you have what happened here, which is a government determining that something is permissible under the law, but it is still the product of a private initiative and a private choice to engage in that activity, that there is no state action. Now, their primary fact point, though, is that it seems the record does display that NASDAQ was responding to statements by commissioners. And I think they're simply misreading both those statements and the law on that point, Your Honor, because both of those statements were made by two individual commissioners who were in dissent, who were not speaking for the commission as a body, nor do individual commissioners have the ability to make policy for the commission. And those statements were criticizing a commission rule for not going far enough on diversity. There's no discussion in those statements about a need for exchanges, for example, to take up the mantle on this, or recommending exchange rules. But when we look at the record, you would say it's clear that this rule came into play because investors told NASDAQ they wanted it, and the SEC stayed neutral. They didn't impart a view as to its wisdom, didn't encourage it, certainly didn't coerce it. Is that a fair statement of the government's position? Yes, Your Honor, that is a fair statement. And I will just to sort of close out the point on the commissioner's statements, point out that government officials make policy speeches all the time, as they should. We should want transparency from government officials, but to say that every time they make a policy statement that amounts to substantial encouragement and can lead to state action would really expand the scope of the state action doctrine and constitutionalize private conduct in a way that the Supreme Court has told us in Halleck is not. The thing is, I mean, obviously we've seen a lot of law about state action in this last year and back in the civil rights era, and so when the government does a wink and a nod and private actors respond, their theory here is that the SEC commissioners nudged them and said, we think a social justice mission is good here, right? We think that we need to force American companies to put gays on boards. That's, as I see it, and if that were true, if there were evidence that this was responsive to that type of SEC admission, then you'd have state action. Would you agree? I think if there were substantial encouragement in the form that the courts have required, but that's just not borne out in this record, right? And it's more than a policy speech about individual officials who don't have the authority to act, right? I think if you... How broad do we look for the record? Does it have to be confined to the approval order? I think, Your Honor, if there were, it would be a more complicated question if you had a commission document where they had said, you know, we're doing X as an agency, we sure hope exchanges go do Y, and the commission is speaking as a body. And what do you point to in the approval order, same question I asked them, where it's clear it's the SEC is neutral on the wisdom of this? Is there anything in the approval order where it's just the SEC says, we aren't saying this is good or bad? 
I don't know that there's a precise quote. I think the absence of any evidence that the commission is taking a policy position is important. I also think it's important to think about the statutory context and what this, in how this arose and what the commission's discretion is, right? If it finds that something is consistent with the act based upon substantial evidence in the record, it shall approve the vehicle for the commission to address. Consistent with the act and what word in the act is this most consistent with? Is it the word equity? Or are you actually saying they made empirical findings that this type of information improves the performance of the market? The commission did not go that far, Your Honor, but what it did was find that given the demand for this information from a broad swath of the market, right, this is not just a vocal group of investors as the commission pointed to, right? We have a broad swath of institutional investors, retail investors, managed funds, issuers themselves. I'm going to ask you the same strong question as them. What footnote are you pointing to to support that the SEC here did find that it was broad investor interest? It was not special interest social justice stuff. It was broad. Where would you point to that they made that economic finding? Because they do have an APA argument. That's correct, Your Honor, and I would point you to page 7 of the joint appendix where the commission is discussing the demand for this information. I also think it's important to take a look at the commission's discussion of the empirical evidence. The petitioners are arguing here that the commission rejected that evidence altogether, and that's not what the commission said. What the commission said was the empirical evidence is inconclusive, but it is a matter of reasonable debate, and importantly, the commission went on to find that any evidence that tended to show that there might be a potential for harm was largely inapplicable here. And so what the commission said on page 10 of the joint appendix was given the informational and disclosure benefits that they've already found and the fact that the costs and the potential harm are likely to be comparatively low, it's finding consistency with the act. And Your Honor asked— So that's how you distinguish the D.C. Circuit's business roundtable, that in fact they did do a proper cost-benefit analysis? I think you're referring to the second business— The second one, the 2011 one. That's correct. And I would say two things about that case. Yes, here there was a sufficient grappling with the evidence. Second, that was a commission rule, and I do think that's important because a lot of the court's criticism there was about a failure to address incremental costs and benefits with respect to the tradeoffs being made in a commission rulemaking. Certainly that's not something that the commission does in the posture of an SRO rule where it is a up or down, yes or no. So that kind of grappling with alternatives is not something the commission does in this posture. I'm guessing you're familiar with our Darpaze decision? I am, Your Honor, yes. What about applying that here? There's just no intelligible principle that Congress has given the SEC about this type of social justice cost. How would you respond to that argument? I think there's two really important points to respond to that argument. First, of course, the premise of that is a public non-delegation argument that assumes you have government agency action. Your Honor is correct that NASDAQ is a private, for-profit entity that's part of a publicly traded company. So to 
it's simply not the same as a government agency where you need a particular authorization for Congress for each action for them to engage in their business judgment. The question is actually different here, which is whether there's... You're going to make two points. Is this your second? This was just the back end of the first, which is just that the question is, does this fall within the limitations that Congress has drawn on their action, not whether there's a specific authorization. But with respect to the commission's action, because of course the commission is a government actor, there's very clear principles guiding the commission's decision making here. There is a detailed procedure under Section 19 of the Act, which calls for the commission to make specific findings as to consistency with the remainder of the relevant provisions of the Act, as well as commission rules. Here the focus was on Section 6b-5, where there are several affirmative obligations the commission has to find are advanced, as well as it has to find that it doesn't transgress any of the prohibitions. So there's a number of intelligible principles here. I thought a difficult question to them was what about veteran information, but a difficult question for you might be, would you just say, well, if the investors want it, we got to approve it, if the question instead were, you've got to disclose religious affiliation of every board member? I think this may not be satisfying for your honor, but the real question is whether there's substantial evidence to establish a connection to the statutory findings here. I think in some of the sort of more inflammatory examples, it's very hard to imagine you have the same kind of record of a demand for this information across the market, where the market has valued it, and importantly, no contrary evidence of harm. Okay, so it is both. It can't just be prejudiced investors who want to invest in Christian companies. It's got, the SEC still has to make sure that's not going to harm what, the economy? I think it's not going to be harmful to the market or investors. Wouldn't it always be harmful if we were allowing investment into bigotry, for example? I don't think the societal judgments and those kind of value judgments are the determination that the act calls on the commission to make, nor do I think that's really where we want to be, that the commission, despite evidence that this meets the market-based objectives and purposes of the act, is making a value judgment that nonetheless something is a bad idea. I point to the harm, Your Honor, because one of the objectives in 6b-5 is designed in general to promote the protection of investors and the public interest, so I think if there were evidence that this was harmful to investors, that would be a complicated finding to make, but that's certainly not what we have here. Okay. You come so opposite the argument that, you know, the SEC is not just responding to the investment request, but literally characterizes or in fact sort of solicited, if you will, or encouraged or whatever, whatever, for the flow as opposed to merely responding to something initially generated that may not be articulated or stated, but the point is, what's your response? Their argument is, yeah, the SEC says it's neutral, but they really are going to the actus for this, so therefore they're kind of stepping in the shoes of non-neutrality, so 
the question is, you know, facially order or in retrofitment, what's the best response when we dive in to to that first instance? I mean, we got a mixture of stuff here. So what's the what do you point us to most to be focusing on from your observation? I think what I'd point you to most is the absence of any evidence that that happened. Right? The best they can come up with are these statements from Commissioners Crenshaw and Lee that we've already talked about this morning. There is no other evidence that this was a commission initiative. And I think, you know, that's the line that the state action case law draws, right? You have to have coercion or substantial encouragement such that it's fair to say this was in effect the action of the government in order for there to be state action. And there's simply nothing that rises to that level in this case. This was a private initiative undertaken by NASDAQ, which is a heavily regulated exchange. They therefore had to come to the commission for approval. But that approval is a determination merely that it is consistent with the boundaries the Exchange Act has drawn for their private action. And that initiative and that discretion within those guidelines was taken by NASDAQ here. And the Supreme Court has been very clear in Sullivan and in Bloom and in other cases that that kind of mere acquiescence or approval of something that is a private initiative is not state action. I do also want to briefly address the Moose Lodge point that they have raised. And I think it's important to note what happened in that case, which is the underlying rules were not struck down as state action in Moose Lodge. What the court did was enjoin the application of the municipal ordinance against those rules. And the reason that was the outcome is precisely what we're talking about here, which is that the underlying rules were the product of private initiative, much as these were here. And the fact that after NASDAQ makes the voluntary choice to propose a rule, it is thereafter required as a regulated entity to apply it consistently doesn't change the independent nature of that underlying choice. And I think the Supreme Court's opinion in Bloom is instructive on this. There, the court rejected an argument that the presence of penalties under the Medicaid Act for nursing homes that fail to transfer patients to appropriate levels of care was sufficient to make those transfer decisions state action. And what the court said there was the penalties aren't making those individual decisions. That's precisely the case here. And to the extent there is an analogy to Moose Lodge made, the other, I think, important point is the court there had a specific challenge to the municipal ordinance in front of it. That is not the case here. The petitioners are challenging NASDAQ's rules. They're not challenging Section 19G of the Exchange Act. So that question is not before you, nor is it ripe. And should the commission ever bring an action against NASDAQ for failing to enforce these rules, there would be an opportunity for judicial review of the question of whether that enforcement rises to the level of state action. All right. One last question, I think. Not unsurprisingly, we have an amicus brief still filed here. Is there some takeaway from all the filings with respect to this Monell claim? 
I think the two things I would point the court to most prominently are the brief by the experts in corporate governance. I think it very clearly lays out sort of the relationship between the exchanges and the commission here and the distinction between exchange corporate governance standards where they have more freedom to act in that area that the commission does in its own rulemaking. And you'll see that echoed in the first business roundtable case from the D.C. Circuit as well. The other amicus brief I would point you to is the ICI investors brief. And I think there are two points that are important. One is that they do, in fact, rely on board diversity information to make decisions. That's sort of the core of the rationale as to how this is related to the Exchange Act. And I think the other point they raise is the value they find in the explanation component of the rule as well. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court. I'll begin by setting out the two primary reasons the petition should be denied. And then, Judge Higginson, I will address some of your record-based questions specifically. The petition should be denied for two primary reasons. First, the Constitution doesn't stand as an obstacle to NASDAQ rules. NASDAQ, like other securities exchanges that have existed since the nation's founding, is a private actor, not an arm of the state. The rules governing voluntary contractual relationships between NASDAQ and companies choosing to list on its exchange are private action that, if anything, the Constitution protects, not constrains. Any other conclusion would create a circuit split, as Your Honors were discussing, with at least the Second and Ninth and probably the Third, Seventh, and Fourth Circuits as well. But we're sort of partway there already with intercontinental. So it's sort of the same question I've asked both sides. How do you deal with intercontinental? Certainly, Your Honor, and I agree with my friends at the SEC. I think first and foremost, that language was dicta. The language clearly identifies it as dicta. No less than Judge Friendly, in his Solomon decision, referred to this court's holding as dicta. So we think it's dicta. Even if it isn't, it's been undercut, as this court has recognized, by subsequent Supreme Court precedent. And I think it's telling that the Supreme Court itself, in Jackson, limited Burton, the case on which this court relied in intercontinental industry. The Supreme Court itself limited Burton to its facts. And this court, in both Yeager and Frazier, recognized that limitation. The best current case under binding Fifth Circuit law as to what has to be shown to make these organizations state actors, this one. What's the test? So I would say that the court's decision in Yeager probably sets out that test. And that decision looks at a level of pervasive entwinement. I think 
that's the Supreme Court, the language that the Supreme Court used. And if I can interrupt because of time. Yes, no, please, Your Honor. You know, as counsel for NASDAQ, do you deeply object with record support to the suggestion that this is top-down SEC to your client to have sort of a woke mission to get minorities and gays on boards? Or do you think the record is conclusive, this is bottom-up, investors say, right or wrong, we want this information to know where to put our money? Your Honor, absolutely the latter. And to pick up on Judge Stewart's question about the amici. What's the best record support that it couldn't possibly be these stray commissioners that's from your investors? Where do you point to in the record? So two points, Your Honor. I think the best place to point to the record is pages 7 and 8, JA 7 and 8, where the SEC itself in its order is talking about the diverse collection of commenters. These are commenters before the agency. This is not just NASDAQ say-so. These are legion of commenters who submitted comments, which is the record before us, who expressed interest in board diversity information, including institutional investors, investment managers, listed companies, and individual investors, as well as statements made by institutional investors, asset managers, and business organizations. So your client would impose a similar informational rule, disclose or explain, if you had percolating up interest in Christian leadership, military leadership. Whatever the investors want, that's valid under the Exchange Act? Or is there a point where it isn't consistent with the Exchange Act focus on fair and equitable trade? I think the latter, Your Honor. I think there are two limitations. I think Your Honor is correct to point out that the Exchange Act imposes limitations on disclosure rules. To be sure, disclosure is the touchstone of the Act. That said, disclosures must pass through the view of the Exchange Act and be consistent with. And importantly, that's a limited review that the SEC is performing. It is looking at our rules that we developed, that we adopted, to determine if those rules are consistent with the Exchange Act. I would also point out— And with the Exchange Act, but can it be more precise with what subsection? These rules are consistent with the Exchange Act? Yes. They do what? The SEC found that they are consistent with one of the clauses that talks about fair and equitable trade and also removing impediments, removing impediments to fair and equitable trade. I think, as the SEC explained in its order, it sees sort of all of the statutory language as sort of distilling down to a principle of promoting fair and orderly markets. And certainly, I think this rule, it is a classic disclosure rule, as Your Honor had been talking about. The premise is talent is universal, but maybe we've got structures that mean that actual opportunity to get on boards hasn't perceived the variety of talent. And this rule is beginning to say, let's get it all on the table. That's going astray. I interrupted you. You said two points petitions should be done. First is, these are private actors, not arms of the state. Do you want to jump back to second? Yes, certainly. And second, and I think this is what we've been talking about, Judge Higginson, is that the SEC reasonably concluded that NASDAQ's modest diversity rules 
which require highly sought after disclosures that increase transparency, level the playing field for small investors, and contribute to many investors' decision-making are perfectly consistent with the Exchange Act. And Your Honor, that's what we've been talking about, Judge Higginson, how these rules are, are textbook examples of disclosure rules. How does that help us today in this round of Morgan Freeman proceedings? Certainly, Your Honor, because part of the, part of the rule um, is the diversity matrix, which lays out the information in a, in a searchable and easy-to-read format. Otherwise, investors would have to glean this information on their own. And the SEC specifically addressed it. So it found there's an information asymmetry between the large investors who have, you know, very large stats and can compile this information from, you know, scouring websites um, or, 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 or statements or websites um, of the company. And, and smaller investors who would have to do all of this on its own. So one of the one of the large benefits of the rule and how I think the rule really functions um, to further the purposes of the Exchange Act, um, to remove impediments to fair and orderly markets, um, is to get at this information asymmetry um, on board composition and how companies approach diversity on their boards um, and to level the playing field between the small and, and the large and the large investors. And, and Judge Higginson, to respond to one of your questions, I think you asked, you know, how, how many investors, how, how, how much is enough? And I think wherever that line would be, and we don't think there is an a, a, a empirical line, I think in, in this case, um, if you look just at the uh, investors referenced in the amicus brief uh, that my friend at the SEC referenced uh, on behalf of institutional investors, that's 40 trillion, over 40 trillion in funds uh, represented by that brief um, alone. Um, so we think wherever that line may be, Judge Higginson, in this case, uh, the outpouring of support that prompted NASDAQ to take a look and adopt a modest disclosure rule, um, we think is, is the Constitution does not pose an obstacle to that, and it is perfectly and entirely consistent with the Exchange Act. Put aside state action, constitutional, First Amendment rights and protections, they do argue also non-delegation, and separately they're saying, if we look at the order, it's arbitrary and capricious. That's more the SEC's argument. Could you address whether your client doesn't have the authority to impose this type of woke or, or socially conscious informational rule? So look, sitting, sitting aside the, the characterization of the rule, Your Honor, I think there's no, there's no non-delegation problem here. Um, for two reasons, one of which Your Honor has already highlighted, and that is that this is a NASDAQ rule um, that the SEC approved. So whatever whatever the status of the delegation, it really doesn't matter because the SEC here um, has approved the rule, um, and that's the Supreme Court Sunshine Anthracite case. And at the same time, it is the SEC's approval of the rule um, that, that the Supreme Court has held time and again does not suffice uh, as state action. So we think for both of those reasons, um, there's no non-delegation problem here. I hope that that was responsive to Your Honor's question. When we look here, you said, and counsel opposite said, you know, when the SEC is sort of nudging, well, to the question of whether it's a bottom-up or down, 
just because you sustainably using the tools does not make it a right. But in this case, the complaint says the job title is this and this. That the facts and engineers can prove that the principle will apply here to this instance when the other patterns of behavior are completely proven and used. This is not a slew of cases that necessarily have been presented in this manner. But I don't know if the court, I don't know if the entirety of the law awards some recovery here. Certainly, Your Honor. Let me make two points, if I may, in response to your question. First of all, I think the fact that my friends on the other side are forced to rely on two statements by individual commissioners to show that the SEC in any way encouraged this, I think that only underscores that they cannot possibly meet the test under current Supreme Court and the law of the circuit for that. So I think that underscores that they cannot possibly show that in addition to all the other reasons we talked about. Second, Your Honor, I think this rule, it's a disclosure rule, but it also touches on matters of corporate governance. And there is a whole series of rules addressing things like director independence, disclosure of codes of conduct, disclosure of any third-party compensation that directors receive. So I think we would say that this rule is well within the mainstream, both in terms of disclosure rules and also rules that touch on corporate governance in a way that the exchanges have always done and have had primacy in doing. So if that is responsive to Your Honor's question. Commissioner, the SEC's remarks at the end suggested there may be a ripeness issue. So thinking about limiting principles, does NASDAQ concede that if we got to the point where a company were going to be disciplined or delisted for noncompliance, in other words, now we have an enforcement action rather than just a listing order, would that sort of then heighten into state action? Our position would be, Judge Higginson, that if NASDAQ did not enforce its rules, if the SEC then brought an action against NASDAQ seeking to compel enforcement of its rules, only at that point would you have enforcement and only at that point would you have state action. I think just saying that— That's the SEC against your client. Correct. Let's assume your client decides to discipline one of the companies. No, Your Honor, and I don't think my friend on the SEC would disagree. Whether we are proposing rules or enforcing our rules against the companies who have voluntarily chosen, that is still a private action. It would ripen, Your Honor, potentially, if we were to not enforce our rules and the SEC would bring an action to enforce it. Then you would have the Moose Lodge situation because then you would have enforcement, and even then, as in Moose Lodge, the remedy would involve, as the court did in Moose Lodge, striking the provision that gives the government authority to enforce, not the private rules, which remain at all times private rules. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much. All right, back to you, Ms. Bowman. 
father's question, I'll start with that. Do you disagree with that? Well, so I think the question here really on ripeness and kind of when this kicks in, I think it underscores the fact that the Securities and Exchange Commission could not bring itself to say that provisions of the Exchange Act remain constitutional after the approval of this rule. And a proposed rule cannot be consistent with the Exchange Act, which is what the SEC has to find, if the rule would be unconstitutional or would render other provisions of the same statute unconstitutional, like the enforcement provisions. So right now, even apart from the state action question under the Exchange Act, this order was unlawful, and the SEC does not directly contest that question. But what about the direction of my question, which is it's ripe. The issue is not ripe at the moment. You actually may have state action. Obviously, NASDAQ disagrees with the suggestion of mine, but you might if they actually disciplined a company for noncompliance with the listing rule. That's when your arguments, the constitutional ones, would matter. So I guess I was speaking to the Exchange Act portion of this. On state action, there's an ongoing duty right now to enforce a facially discriminatory rule. I don't believe under ripeness doctrine, facial challenges doctrine, that it would be necessary to wait until such a thing. If I may, Judge, the comparisons you made in terms of religion, veteran, disability, would be inflammatory. This concerns, on its face, enabling investors to discriminate on the basis of race. That is perhaps the most socially inflammatory question we have in America today. Maybe they're doing it for social justice purposes. Maybe they're doing it for bigotry purposes. It doesn't matter. Why is the disclosure inherently discriminatory? So we have because they encourage discrimination on the basis of race and sex. That's the standard under W.H. Scott in Judge King's opinion to that effect in this court. If I may. I expect you're going to be giving as much time as we have questions. So on that last point, I guess I'm not that agreeing. You heard my comment about no one in America would deny there's talent everywhere, but a lot of it's just never been recognized. It tends to correspond to often underprivileged minorities, and they clearly haven't had opportunity in Wall Street for this. So if all this rule is saying is let's identify talent that hasn't been identified before, right, and boards tend to self-perpetuate. They work in a little black box. Let's just have the board disclose what their background is. Like we want to know judges. Any judges on the Eighth Circuit that are women? No. Everyone got concerned. So why isn't this pretty healthy information? I think, Judge Higginson, you're anticipating what is in the main the only permissible ground in which our Constitution would tolerate discrimination on the basis of race, which is revenue-earned prior discrimination. That is not the record we have in this case. The commission did not base its approval on any kind of remedial rationale. The basis was investor demand. And investors may have their own, all their various private motives for doing so, but we have over and over again these statements about wanting to drive diversity and increase diversity. But as I, diversity and remedy-earned prior discrimination are two separate rationales, the first of which, of course, is up for active reconsideration right now at the Supreme Court in the Harbor and UNC cases that are being argued this term. If I may, I'd like to speak briefly to why it is we can't hide behind, or the SEC can't hide behind the fact that NASDAQ privately initiated this. We're not, 
So first, the SEC had to affirmatively determine that this facially discriminatory rule is in the public interest. That was part of its obligation under the Exchange Act. They did it. It's also not equitable to demand information for the purpose of discrimination on the basis of race and sex. That's not possible. And lastly, public initiative is not the only ground for a finding of state action. You can have situations where private initiative is probably the spark or the first domino to push things into state action. Entwinement remains good law in this circuit. This includes via the fact that Intercontinental Industries is cited multiple times for its constitutional holding, the application of the Fifth Amendment in subsequent opinions by this court remains good under the rule of order. There is a holding that Supreme University didn't sit with that dictum. Well, not by this court, Your Honor. Not by the district court. That was just the majority opinion and all that. Right. Are you saying there's not a holding in the case? So— As we've explained, we think that the best reading of the case itself is that there is a holding or else the rest of what the court says doesn't make sense. But more to the point, Your Honor, in Harding v. American Stock Exchange and Northern Alabama Express Incorporated v. United States, these are two Fifth Circuit cases that are on page five of our reply brief. What do you do with the argument that, assuming whatever vitality it had, it was undercut by the way the Supreme Court took the Ninth and Harding and Evans, et cetera? So what do you do with that? Assuming it had the vitality, et cetera, what's your response to that? I'd have, if I may, I have two responses. One is Frazier, 1985 decision by this court, which postdates the trilogy of what we could call modern state action cases in 1982, which talks directly about symbiotic relationship as an ongoing viable theory of state action. And the second is Moose Lodge was itself directly referenced in a positive light in those state action cases. It's Lugar v. Edmondson. I don't have the case in front of me, but it is footnote 20 that recapitulates Moose Lodge's holding, as I've articulated it, in the unquestionably modern— The footnote is not unimportant to you. Oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor? The U.S. Supreme Court case is before us all, in your view. There's nothing that undercuts the argument. The— You're arguing back to Moose Lodge, which is unimportant. But anyway, we assume you brief and you've argued. I'm not trying to get you to re-argue something you said. I'm just trying to get you to— My reference to the Lugar v. Edmondson earlier footnote, Your Honor, was simply that it's an observation in passing by the Supreme Court that it's—the holding of Moose Lodge is read as consistent with the thrust of modern state law doctrine. Go ahead to wrap up whatever you want to part in taking your time to conclude your view on that. You've got your rebuttal, so if you want to part in saying it again, I mean, you can tell us to do it. This is—by the operation of the Exchange Act, there is an ongoing duty right now on the NASDAQ Exchange to encourage discrimination on the basis of race and sex. That is—it's unlawful for the reasons we've mentioned, and specifically it results in state action 
that has to be subject to constitutional scrutiny. What's your best case that says disclosure is tantamount to equivalent to that kind of discrimination? I mean, if you know about discrimination, you can say, well, I didn't give you a free example. I just asked you. I didn't give you a free example. I'm just saying the best case in your argument in regards to that is in the context of disclosure as opposed to saying you can't deal in X, Y, or you can't move forward or you can't do this or do this or the other or lie or smear me and that's not enough. It's a de minimis, yada, yada, yada. Now, you can make an argument in general, but I'm just saying all that. I'm just saying what's your best case that disclosure is what you see applies in that context to this claim of imminence and one that's being asserted for discrimination as opposed to you must have yada, yada. You follow me? I believe so, Your Honor. I believe the best case on this point is W. H. Scott on encouragement. Encouragement means even if there's goals or in this case a diversity objective, to use NASDAQ's phrase, short of a hard requirement, you can have discriminatory acts take place that would not otherwise have taken place. Here we have a rule whose stated purpose and undisputed effect is to facilitate discrimination on the basis of race and sex. I can give four different quotes from the Commission and from NASDAQ. They're on page 14 of our reply brief. Okay. I'll ask you this and just let you give me your sites, but I need you to give those responses to me, please. Thank you, sir. I have eight small points, but they're very short. First, for you, Judge Higginson, the site is JA7-8 or 86 Fed Reg 44430. Okay. That's for the proposition that the NASDAQ was responsive to these dissenting commissioners? No, no. What is that? I had so many questions. That's responsive to what? That is the response for the finding by the SEC that board diversity rules on race, gender, and sexuality are key indicators of good corporate governance. Okay. First record site. SEC. So that's number one. Number two goes to Judge Stewart's question on whether the holding of intercontinental is dictum or actual law. The best case we have on that is called Hamreta v. Green, and that reviewed a Second Circuit decision called Horn, and they made that same argument in the Horn case, that this was just a preparatory ruling, and then they went on to find that the constitutional issue didn't arise, so it's dicta. In Hamreta v. Green, the Supreme Court deemed Horn's reasoning erroneous, explaining that a constitutional ruling preparatory to a grant of qualified immunity creates law and is no mere dictum. That's at 563 U.S. 692. Third point I would like to make is I found it really interesting that you brought up the religious affiliation, because when 
I started looking at this case, I went and looked at the studies to see what kind of record the SEC had. And in fact, they are very correct that the record is very inconclusive as to whether board diversity improves company performance. But in looking for such information, I stumbled upon studies that show that religious observation, people who are religiously observant, it doesn't matter what religion, in fact create ethical corporate cultures. But surely, even in a case where there is hard evidence of that, much more so than the three categories described here, we wouldn't be asking board directors to state their religion and are they observant. It would be deeply offensive to how we govern this country and how the government should use its power, which is carefully. Also, the standards that the SEC and NASDAQ are working with are subjective, not objective. And subjective standards always have no recognizable limit. Furthermore, in the record, nothing is positive. On the religious point, what are you reading from? Is that the SEC statement? No, 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 no. That was just my own research. It was your own. Right. There's studies out there, and that would not be surprising. But are there studies somewhere in this record? No, because there was no religious qualification here. So, of course, that would have been submitted. But the point is there are studies out there that do correlate. I know you had eight points. But I'm going to ask you, is there any evidence in this record that the NASDAQ was responsive to the two dissenting commissioners? Or is it just the quotes from those commissioners? It's the quotes from the commissioners, but I think they say they adopted it pursuant to that interest by the SEC commissioners who were. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. On state action, our best case is called Blunt versus the SEC. It's a D.C. Circuit case, and it says that an SRO setting of conditions for people to be part of the SEO is state action of the purest form. And further, exchanges exercise play. The Blunt case, is it in your brief? Yes, it is. And Blunt is spelled B-L-O-U-N-T. Right. It's in your brief. You cited it. Okay. And the other thing the SEC did not do was quantify the extent of investors. The only thing they put in, in fact, were institutional investors, which my learned colleague at NASDAQ quantified into many trillions of dollars. But these aren't actual investors. They're fund managers. And they manage fund. They are not representing investors except in terms of getting them a return on their money. And on this question, because the investor demand is unquantified, it lacks both any measured meaning or also any limit on what it could apply to. What if a very large— From here on, just give me the bullet points. Okay. Well, okay. On the 
questions you asked, uh, again, opposing counsel, um, were the disclosure rules, that these are mere disclosure rules. Unfortunately for their cause, they are not mere disclosure rules. They have the sanctions with them, and, and uh, Facebook was fined $10 million by the um, SEC for not following NASDAQ's rules. Um, and the, the standard is not, um, this is, should be disclosed because it's not inconsistent with the rules. At the beginning of my argument, I quoted the section in the statute that says it must be relevant to what the work that the SEC does. And these regulations fail that test. Good place to put the period. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We appreciate, you know, there's a lot going on. It's an important case. Not that all the other cases aren't, but admittedly there are a lot of layers here, and the whole point of oral argument is to, to help the panel as we dig through and we'll read it all and try to figure it out, you know, as best we can. I will say from my own observation and not speaking for my panel, just, you know, we do have categories of class four cases. I mean, most of the ones we put up here are class three. Class fours are these super duper complex cases like we do in the death case, which warrant more oral argument time uh, in a class four. I would argue speaking as the one that's been here 20 years that this would fit into class four. You might not get it because the panel might say no dice, but you know, it's kind of no harm in asking, but I would say, you see how much time you may be giving them anyway. Uh, so I'm just saying, not every case involving the SEC, but there are complex, complex cases in, in our rules that can be categorized as a class four, which definitionally give you more time, which means, you know, as you could tell, you're not trying to get something in eight minutes, which is an impossibility. I would say I'm probably minimized to give you as much time as you got uh, for whatever help. But I, I'm just mentioning each, not the SEC-driven case, whatever, but Scooter Segregation cases, uh, there are a raft of cases that are class fours just because you got a whole bunch of lawyers, a lot of issues, and a lot of so. So each case just look. You might ask them if they're on slang, but they will look you up. And don't ask them if you did it. But anyway, just brief as that. All right. Um, we'll uh, work our way through it. Thank you for your responsiveness to it. And. Um,